I'm John, and I'm the lead pastor at the Gathering Place Church. If you're visiting, great to have you uh, here. Um, I'm not sure if you connected the dots or not with the drops of love. You realize what we've done? It's so simple. Um, Shelly Cowpersmith and some of the ladies in the church uh, originated this a few years ago where they simply make greeting cards. Rather than, sorry if you work at Hallmark, rather than going to Hallmark and buying a card, you can buy high-level cards out there. They're really well done. And all the proceeds go to help people get out of refugee camps. And those are three families that we have transformed their lives simply by buying the cards out here instead of at Hallmarks. That's, that's pretty innovative, isn't it? And that's also called the Great Commission. At the Gathering Place, we not only share the love of God, the love of Jesus, we show it, right? Jesus said to visit those in prison and clothe the naked and feed the hungry, and we do that as much as we do sharing the good news. So, uh, and we will continue to do that until he returns. We're doing that in Ethiopia as well, where uh, Joe Rose, the, the senior pastor of New Hope Church down the street, he and I um, looked at a world map, and we wanted to go after an unreached people group, those who had never heard the name of Jesus before. And when we went back to the villages in Ethiopia, we would literally whole villages would come to Jesus. They'd never heard the gospel. They're under uh, the religion of Islam, which is a fearful religion that does not promise salvation uh, and the forgiveness of sins except through uh, performance, personal performance in your lifestyle, where Jesus says you're all sinners, you're going to hell, there's no hope, but I love you so much, I'm going to die in your place. So we live for Jesus because he died for us. That's the gospel. And so when they hear that message, it blows them away. It's too good to be true. And it is too good to be true, but it is true. And so whole villages were coming to Christ. And then we realize they're dying from uh, a lack of access to water or clean water. And so then we started doing water wells. And uh, now we're doing a holistic gospel. We're bringing, we're doing microloans and helping people learn skills to elevate their family and their villages and their culture. So we, Jesus cares not only about your eternal destiny, but about your physical needs right here and now on the planet Earth. Because we live in a broken earth that is suffering and groaning. And Christians need to roll up their sleeves in the name of Jesus Christ and help the hurting, spirit, soul, body, financial, relational. Amen? That's who we are. That's what we do. So, so, um, <clears throat> The book of Romans says that our earth is groaning in pain ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. So we, we don't live on a planet the way that God originally designed it. The Garden of Eden was paradise. There was no suffering. There was no crying. There were no arguments. There was no strife. There was no selfishness. It was Adam and Eve walking with God who created them for the purpose of walking with him. So when the devil... Uh, convinced Adam and Eve to live independently from God, which is always the battle with human beings, is buying the lie from the enemy that, that not going to church, not reading the word, not spending time in prayer, not serving Christ, not walking with God is, is better than being fully devoted to Jesus Christ. It's better to live your own lifestyle, make your own choices, your own core values. And the, our culture will, will, do everything they can, Satan, the, the prince of the power of the air, will use every medium possible to try to change your thinking till you believe that it's better to live distant from God than close to God. That's his goal. And if you buy that, then you get strung out and you get taken down 
a long, hard, lonely, dark path. But even when you walk with Christ, we are still in a fallen world. We still have sickness and disease. We still have selfishness. And we still have the devil whose agenda is to kill, steal, and destroy. So just because you come to Christ doesn't mean that you're going to avoid trials. In fact, and this will really encourage you to give your life to Jesus. You give your life to Jesus Christ, you just became an enemy of Satan. Because once you give your life to Christ, you are filled with the spirit of the living God. You have the name of Jesus, which has all authority. You have the word of God, which Satan must obey. And so you become a threat to the powers of darkness. You also carry the simple message of the gospel that you're a sinner. You have no hope, but Jesus died for your sins. You ask Jesus Christ into your heart. He will cleanse you of all your sins freely because he paid the price for you. And the day you die, you will find yourself in heaven with God back in paradise where he originated you to live eternally as a free gift through Jesus Christ. Now, you have that message in you walking around the planet. So you become a threat to the enemy. Then you lead in an organization like this, like a church, and you really set yourself up for uh, to be a target. Now, some of you uh, that know what my wife is going through uh, with cancer, and you might ask yourself, well, what hope do I have if the senior leaders of the church who are fully dedicated and praying and have faith and there, there are examples that they get hit like this, what, 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 what good is my faith? What good are my prayers? Well, what you have to understand is that when you lead, you, you are out on the front line and you stick your neck out and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, who do you think the enemy is going to try to pick off first? But what, he's not count, what he didn't count on was the body of Christ. Because the way that you all have responded to us is overwhelming. Your love, your support, your sacrifice to provide for us and to protect us and to encourage us has been incredible. So... And you might say, well, I wouldn't want to lead. Yes, you want to fulfill your call in Christ. Once you give your life to Jesus Christ, you become part of the army of God. And Jesus is going to pass out rewards on the day that you meet him face to face. So you want to fulfill your call no matter what it is. That's what I plan to do. That's what my wife plans to do. We are going to do this for the rest of our lives no matter what. It doesn't matter what the sacrifice is. Jesus told Paul the apostle when he called Paul, Saul, to be the apostle, he said, I've shown Paul how many things he's going to have to suffer for my namesake. So Paul counted the cost before he ever stepped out and preached his first message. Paul knew that suffering was part of the Christian life. I remember listening to a New Year's message by a friend of mine who had a mega church in Colorado. And uh, I'm thinking, I want to listen to what he would say on New Year's to inspire the body of Christ. Because he's pastoring 10,000 people. He's known all over the world. People listen to what he has to say. I want to hear what he would say on New Year's Day. So his New Year's message was this. People have asked me and my staff members why we are so joyful all the time. And he said, so I started thinking about it. Why are we so joyful? And he, and he came to the conclusion. He said, we have learned how to suffer well. What a horrible New Year's message, you know. <laughs> How to suffer well this year. Well, I'm not going to give that as my New Year's message, but I am going to talk to you today about four things you need to know about trials. Because you're not going to be able to avoid all trials. 
So if we have a right perspective on trials, when you go into a trial, you're going to go through it well. You are going to glean everything you can glean. You're going to come out two, four, or seven times better than when you went into the trial. That's actually called biblical restoration. When you go through a trial and you go through it well, you end up on the other side of the trial. God will restore to you two times, four times, or seven times everything that you was stolen from you or you were robbed uh, through, through that trial. Did you know that? That's biblical restoration. And natural restoration, like in the natural courts and the earthly courts, if you steal from something from somebody, they make you restore equally what you stole. It's retribution, right? You have to restore. Biblical restitution is what it's called. Biblical restitution is two, four, or seven times what was stolen from you. That's what I am waiting for. So four things you need to know in a trial. Have I made it clear that as a believer you're going to go through hard times in the earth? All right, so you need to go through it well. Number one, trials are temporary. Will you say this out loud with me? This is temporary. I want us to read Psalm 84 together because this is an uh, incredible psalm that puts this truth into context. Psalm 84, this is David, whose son, Absalom, was very upset with his dad because he didn't feel like his dad was taking care of things the way that he thought he should. So Absalom stood out, uh, camped outside the uh, city gates, and he gathered people to himself, and he talked uh, negatively about his father, and he got a following. And they rose up against David, and they drove David away from uh, the city of David, from Zion. So David is now living in the wilderness, and uh, his son is sitting on his throne. It was a very, very, very disheartening time for David. What a trial. And so I'm going to read down through Psalm 84, and then I'm going to expound on it. Psalm 84, this is David writing this song in his trial. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. This is what he's thinking about as he's in, in, in the desert, away from his city. He's thinking about the house of God. He's thinking about church. He's thinking about the presence of God. That's all that's on his mind. Oh, my soul longs, just even faints for the course of the, of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Ah, man, what a focus. In the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his own son rising up in insurrection against him, all he's thinking about is the presence of God and how much he misses going to church. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. That means passing through. As they, everybody say it, pass through. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools of blessings. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. That means stop, think, meditate on what you just read. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. That would be you. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. That's what happens when you 
find yourself distant from God, you lose your spiritual walk with the Lord, and you end up in the world, and you end up desolate, you end up in a dry place. You start to crave God again. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. He's singing this while he's in the middle of his trial. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. What a great psalm. What a great psalm. See, that's why God loved David so much. David would whine and cry, but he always, always knew and spoke hymns of faith that God is with me. God's not going to forsake me. He's going to turn my situation around. I love him anyway. Four things we see in this psalm. Number one, trials are temporary. You notice that phrase, whose heart is set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of weeping. You know, uh, I'm from Ohio, and it's cold there in the wintertime. It is like really cold. My wife and I, I um, did a 10-year run at a church in East County. I was on staff. And so I had a year sabbatical. And so during that year, I got married and hoping I were deciding where we we're going to live. We're going to go back to live in Louisiana, which you don't want to do because the state bird is the mosquito. So I knew we weren't going to go there. And then and so it was either Louisiana, Ohio, or California. So we went to Ohio because my grandmother died during this time. So we happened to visit Ohio, and it was in the cold, the dead of winter. It was below zero, wind chill factor. How many of you are from the Midwest or from the, the north? Okay. There are times when you think winter is never going to end. I mean, you get up at 5 or 6 a.m., you get outside, whoa, man, I mean, that, that wall of cold just hits you in your face. It goes right through your clothes, down to your bones. And you think you're going to jump into a nice warm car. No, first you have to chip the ice off your windshield. As you're doing that, you start to atrophy. And there are times I would literally go to put my key in my lock and I couldn't turn it. I'm literally throwing my body like this, trying to get the, t- the key to turn in the lock of my car because your muscles are starting to freeze up. That's not, that's, I'm not making that up. It's real. Sometimes that it goes on for a month, two months, three months. You, I mean, summer's like a distant memory. And the coming spring, you don't think it's ever going to come. That's the way you feel in trials sometimes. This is never going to end. Back to the story, though. I've got to finish that just for fun's sake. So Hope and I go to my grandma's funeral. She has on her skirt and stockings. And we are out at the gravesite. We're still deciding where to live. She grabs my arm. She's practically cutting off the circulation as we're walking across the, the ground, which is like concrete. It's dirt, but it's like concrete, right, because it's frozen. And as we're walking across, she said, this is not doable. <laughs> so here we are in sunny California. But there are times when you go through a deep, dark trial that is so cold, so hard, it seems like it's going to last forever. Maybe it's a divorce. You say, well, how's that temporary? Maybe it's the death of a child. How's that temporary? Maybe it's having lost a loved one. Maybe it's having lost your job. Maybe it's having been let go after 30 years of faithfulness at a corporation because your retirement is just going to cost too much. How's that temporary? Because God is masterful 
and bringing you into a new season. I remember Gary saying to the staff just recently, you ever think about how you go through the hardest trials of your life and you think, I will never forget what this pain. And then a few years later, it's almost like it's just a memory and you think back, but you can't, you can't, you don't feel that pain anymore. I want to say, if God's your God, because God is the God of all comfort and God is the God of new beginnings and God is the God of restoration. When you walk with God, he literally wipes your tears, erases your past, and gives you a brand new future. And that's not just hype preaching. It's real. We serve the living God, the God of creation, the God of new beginnings. That's why the psalmist could write Psalm 35. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That may be a literal 24-hour period. It may be months. It may be years. But God restores us. You may have seasons of deep darkness and suffering, but God brings you joy at daybreak. That word joy there is the Greek word rena, the kind of joyful shouting at the time of great victory. You see, one of the reasons why my wife and I are able to walk through the trial we're walking through right now, the way we do, like one person said that your house is going to be filled with laughter. And I was thinking, you're an idiot. But... I, I wasn't thinking that. But, but actually, our home, though we have crying and though we have sorrow, we have so much laughter. We, I mean, it's just amazing how much joy we have in our home in the midst of a trial. Because God is the one that brings joy in the midst of suffering. The Bible says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God brings joy in the middle of your sorrow. It is supernatural. But we also know that our God is the God of restoration and that this trial is temporary. Your trial is temporary. And when we get to the other side of the trial, we are going to be two, four, or seven times better than if we never went through this trial. I can prove that to you biblically all day long. I won't take the time to do it, but I'm telling you, that is exactly what's going to happen because that's who our God is. But listen, what if your trial lasts a lifetime? What if, like some of our friends that we know, have cancer and it's fatal and they die? That's one of the things that help us is our perspective. She was, my wife was getting a, a, um, her chemo infusion, her first one. And right across from him was a, a, a guy in his chair, and he has stage four brain cancer. And he has a kid that's in my son's class. They happen to live in Ramona. And he has three other children. And without a miracle, he is going to go on to heaven. So that trial will last the entire life. So, well, how's that temporary? Because of heaven. You see, the worst thing that can happen to us on this earth is that we get to go home as a believer. I want you to look at this. Go with me to the book of Hebrews. I want you to see this reality. This is called the eternal perspective. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 13 and 16, I want you to see how this chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is called the Faith Hall of Fame. 
These are men and women who went before you and I, believers who lived on the earth before we lived on the earth, and how they ran their race of faith well. And the way they did it was they had the eternal perspective. They knew that earth was not their home. Heaven was their home, and so they were able to endure all kinds of suffering on the earth because their heart was not connected to the earth. It was connected to heaven. They knew they were going to be going there someday soon, so they were able to endure unbelievable suffering in the earth. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16 says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. See? Their trial lasted their entire lifetime, and then they died. You say, how's that temporary? But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Like when I would get lost in the snow in Ohio. I remember when I was in junior high school, I was walking to a party in the snow, and I got lost. When you are lost and you're walking in the snow and your toes feel like they're getting frostbitten and it's nighttime and the wind's blowing in your face, you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going, you don't know how to get home. It's, that, is, that seems like this is never going to end. But then I remember seeing a road that I recognized and I knew my way home. And all of a sudden, it was like the cold wasn't nearly as cold because I had a very clear destination. I knew I'll be home in 20 minutes. That's the way these people lived. Though they went through incredible suffering, they knew I'll be home in about 20 minutes. Look at, look at uh, what he goes on to say. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, They would have opportunity to return to it. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What city has God prepared for you? What's he talking about here? Heaven, the city of Jerusalem. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, also believe in me. He said, in my Father's house there are many rooms, and I am going to prepare one for you that I can bring you to myself so that where I am you can be too. Jesus is building you a place to live in heaven right now if you have made him the Lord of your life. If you do not have this eternal perspective, your trials are going to be harder and deeper and longer And your joy is going to be attached to the temporary things of this planet, which are so unpredictable. Look at verse 23 and 26 out of the same chapter. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, everybody say by faith. You see, this is what we're talking about is faith in the eternal God. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was going to be the next king of the greatest country in the world. Choosing rather to suffer affliction, he chose. He could have, he could have literally stopped the suffering and the affliction by saying, I'm choosing to live in the world. I am going to opt out of suffering with the people of God, identifying with Jesus, being mocked at school, being criticized at work. I'm going to opt out of that kind of persecution, and I am going to be accepted by the world. And I'm not going to mention the name of Jesus so people don't think I'm weird. Moses was, being, was going to suffer 
And I'm talking about physical, financial reputation, losing his position, suffer with the people of God who are slaves in Egypt, or he could opt out and say, actually, I would rather just be the king, the Pharaoh of this great nation. And what's it say that Moses did because he had his eyes on heaven? Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the temporary. Everybody say temporary. The temporary passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach, the persecution, the mockery of Christ, greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. That word looked there means to look away from everything else so you can look at one thing specifically. It's like uh, in the dentist's office. You ever seen that? I don't know if you, there's a book in our dentist's office where if you, if you put, it's all got a bunch of dots and you, if you put it right up your nose, it just looks like a bunch of dots. It's just a mess. That's what your life may look like at times. The trial, the suffering, the disappointments. And you, you just can't make sense out of your life. Where's God? Where's God? Where's God? But when you pull the book away from your face out here, all of a sudden, this picture appears. It's like, whoa, where was that? That's the way it is for the believer. When it's up close and personal, whether it's right in your face, it just looks confusing and where's God? But if you just give it time, the more distant you get from the trial, you can look back and you can see, wow, God. Look at the fingerprints of God. This, having the eternal perspective puts this life in context of a bigger picture. It enables you to live for all the right reasons, and it empowers you to endure trials. Look what the Apostle Paul said, and we'll move to the, the next thing I want you to know about trials. The Apostle Paul, who suffered more than anybody in this room, more than any of us ever will. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he literally lists all the things that he went through in his life. The suffering was unbelievable. But look what he writes. For our light affliction. Isn't that amazing? Being beaten with rods, whipped, you know, four or five times, shipwrecked, betrayed by all of his friends. This light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. How's that possible? A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, Everybody say temporary. Say this is temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. So the first thing I want you to know about trials, whether you're going through one right now, listen, you will go through one if you're not going through right now, and you've got to tell yourself this is temporary, this is temporary, this is temporary. Number two, the trials are making you stronger. If you depend on God's strength. Look at what it says in Psalm 84. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you. They go from strength to strength. That's amazing. You may not feel it when you're in the middle of the trial that you're getting stronger, but in the subterranean levels of your soul where Christ resides, he is strengthening you. I mean, metal is forged in the fire. You're getting stronger on the inside through this trial especially if you call out to God. Look what the psalmist says in Psalm 138.3. In the day when I cried to you, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. 
I'm amazed at how when I feel completely drained, I'm completely weak, I am sad, I am mad, I'm depleted. It's amazing to me. You, know, you, you just don't think it can happen. You don't know how I can change my inside from the posture I'm in right now. But when I begin to worship, I kneel down in my bedroom and I just start to talk to God. It, it's just, it's, it's, it's supernatural. It, it shocks me till, to this day, 30 years walking with Jesus, and it still shocks me to this day that he can encourage me when I don't feel like there's any possibility that I could be encouraged. But Jesus said, I, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens. He strengthens you with his strength. I don't need drugs. I have Jesus. He's real. He strengthens your soul. He inspires you when you have no inspiration left, no source of inspiration. People are going to let you down. Circumstances are going to change. The Bible says if you make money, don't set your heart on them because they make wings and fly away. Nothing in this life is for sure except for the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And he strengthens you. That's what amazes me. This says that when you're in a trial, you literally go, if you walk through a trial with Jesus, you actually go from strength to strength. Look at the Bible says about Abraham, given the promise of a child. He had to wait 25 years. Oh, man, God just is not on our time clock. How many of you, how many have learned that? Just raise your hand. You have learned that God is not a fast-through God, fast, a drive-through fast-food restaurant God. It's just so aggravating. He, he, he just, he just, he's just not in a hurry. 25 years Abraham waits. But look what it says about him. And he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. That's the thing that will cripple you in the middle of a trial is your unbelief. Unbelief telling you God's not good. God's not going to change the situation. There is no hope. That's unbelief speaking. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Strengthened in faith. His faith got, was strengthened over 25 years. And that strength of his faith is what gave glory to God because it communicated to everyone around him that he was connected to God because his faith was getting stronger through the trial, not weaker. It's normal to get weaker in a trial, not stronger. But when you walk with Jesus, you actually get stronger and stronger and stronger as you go through the trial. That's the mark of the believer. Paul, who had a trial in his life that was obviously really, really intense. It was called a thorn in the flesh. Whatever the definition of that was, he went to God three times with it. He was focused on the suffering. He was focused on the trial. He was focused on the thorn. He went to God three times. Please take this away from me. Remove this trial. Please get this thing out of my face. Please stop this pain. Please stop this suffering. I've got a job to do. This thing is irritating me. It's hurting me. It's stopping me. It's crippling me. Please, God. Please, God. Please, God. He went to him three times begging God to remove the trial from his life. 
He was focused on the trial. What did God, what was God's response to him? Paul writes, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, that may sound kind of weak, like, well, yeah, that's nice. What's that mean? I'm just going to barely get through. No, look at the definition of grace. For my strength, everybody say strength. See, our God strengthens you in the midst of a trial. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. It's one of my great joys as a father when one of my children are weak. Whatever it might be, physically weak, financially needy, emotionally weak. It's one of my greatest joys, one of my greatest joys to come to them and strengthen them. I want them to feel their father's power of love and grace and forgiveness and provision. I love providing for my children. I love providing for my wife. So like this season with my wife going through this time of suffering, she was saying to me the other day how bad she feels about how it stretches me out to have to cover so many bases. I said, you don't understand. It's my joy to serve you. It's a joy to bring my strength to her, her time of weakness. It's a joy. And I am a fallen, sinful man. God is perfect. God's a heavenly father, full of love, full of compassion. In fact, he sent his son down to the earth to meet us in our greatest point of weakness, which is our spiritual destitution. You and I, the Bible says, have no hope of saving ourselves. The penalty of sin is death, eternal separation from God. The Bible says when you and I had no strength to save ourselves, God sent his own son to die in our place. God takes great joy in meeting us in our place of weakness. Our greatest place of weakness is our spiritual weakness where we will go to hell without any hope. But God sent his son in our place to provide his spiritual strength for our spiritual weakness, saved our souls so we could spend eternity with him in heaven. And the Bible says this in the book of Romans. I love this passage. If God did not spare his only son, How will he not also freely give us all things? God loves to provide. And the place he provides is in our place of weakness. So Paul found out a secret here. Once this shift took place, this paradigm shift took place, he's focused on the trial, focused on the trial, focused on the trial. I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak. Help me, help me, help me. Change the situation, change the situation. God said, oh, no, I got another plan. It's in your place of neediness where I like to come and show off. Because you can't see my strength if you're all self-sufficient. It's when you are suffering and weak and needy that people can see my strength in your life and say, Wow, God. So that's why Paul says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast In my weaknesses, what do we do in the earth as a human race? What do we boast in? 
our strength, our accomplishments, our beauty, our riches, right? We boast about how awesome I am. Paul learned that to connect with God, you have to learn to not hide your weaknesses, but actually boast in them. Meaning, I am not going to pretend I'm not going to be a poser. I'm going to be honest about my weaknesses. Because when I'm honest about my weaknesses, God says, now I can come show you my strength in that area of your life. Paul learned the key to the invasion of God into his life. Admit your weaknesses. And then God's strength comes. That's why he says this. Therefore, I most gladly will rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I would much rather be living by Christ's power than my own power. Thirdly, not only are trials temporary, and not only do they make you stronger as a human being and a follower of Christ, but they also come with blessings. This is the biggest lesson that we are learning right now in the midst of this. Trials come with blessings. In the, in the psalm that we read, Psalm 84, look at this. As they pass through the valley of weeping, Baca, they, everybody say they, they make it a spring. That's very important for you to hear. That's a key part of this passage. As they pass through, not camp in, pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools of blessings. What does that mean? Your and my attitude in the midst of a trial is what makes it a blessing or a curse. This was an actual valley, the valley of weeping. David's talking about getting back to church. He's talking about missing the presence of God, missing celebrating with the people of God. He's just, he's longing to go back in the course of God and hear the incredible worship that we had today. Be in that atmosphere and worship and the presence of God and hear the word of God preaching. He's longing for it. And there's a valley you have to go through to get to the city of David called the Valley of Weeping. And it's a dry and arid uh, land. When you're going through it, many times there'll be showers brief showers so they would they would dig now catch this they would dig holes in the ground so that it would catch the rain so there they'd be pools of blessing the rain you've got to dig your pools you got to dig your holes you got to you got to hone out your relationship with god in the midst of a trial and that's what you drink out of that's what it's talking about making the trials a place of blessings and your perspective is everything there are people who go through trials, and they just whine and whine and whine. And I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to minimize anybody's pain. But there are those who go through a trial, and they whine and whine and whine and complain. And they're, why, 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 why? And then there's a person going through the same trial that after you've whined and complained and cried why for a while, you realize, I've got to shift my attitude. I've got to shift my perspective. God is faithful. God is good. I'm going to change. I'm going to change my. I'm not going to be victimized by this. I'm going to find good in this. And I'm in God's like, yes, yes, yes. All oh, heaven's clapping. Yes, yes, yes. And you start to realize there are blessings all around me. That's what we have found in the midst of this trial. Good people, godly people loving on us. God's showing up in the most unique and remarkable unexpected ways, small things that clearly have God's fingerprints on them. And so we are choosing to focus on the good in the midst of the trial. 
not to mention the character that is being developed in us. Um, One of the things that we are finding in this trial that's a blessing. It's amazing how majors are majors until you go through a trial. And all of a sudden, the things that you thought were so important really don't matter anymore. They just become minors. That is one of the greatest gifts in a trial. The deeper trials you go through, the more it gets shaken out and you start to really know what's really important in life and what's not. Like appearances. Boy, we are so big on appearances. We are such a narcissistic, image-conscious society and people. We care so much about this clay. We push it around. We cover it up. We pump it up. I mean, it's just, and then it just starts to, you know, this gravity just sucks it down to the ground. I mean, it just keeps sucking us. So we keep trying to push it back up and cover it up and then stretch it back. And, I mean, we're just trying to keep this clay from the force of gravity. I mean, we are so image-conscious. When your image is taken from you, you realize how much it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that much. It's on the inside that really matters. And uh, I was th- thinking about how Hope and I, you know, we're walking through. We, we're going to J.C. Penney's because we have to get her some, you know, special uh, clothing. And uh, we're walking into the store. I have to carry her purse because she just had an operation, so she can't carry anything. So I'm carrying her purse as her husband through the parking lot going to J.C. Penney's. And I'm thinking everybody will understand what's going on here, right? I mean, clearly I'm carrying my wife's purse for her for some reason because she didn't have on her, as Ava calls her, biker chick do-rag. Um, and she didn't have on her mask, which I've told her nobody makes the mask look as sexy as she does. And so we're walking to the JCPenney's with a purse, and then my phone rings. So I've got to take a call from one of you. I forget who it was, and I'm talking, and Hope says, okay, I'm going to go I'm gonna go down. i got to go to the – I, I got to go. I'm going to go to the lingerie department. I'm thinking – Okay, I'll meet you there. I'm thinking, oh, I get off the call, and I realize I'm standing here with a lady's purse and J.C. Penney's, and I don't know where the lingerie department is, so I have to ask somebody. <laughs> Trials have a way of working out the image consciousness and what do people think of me. And so I go up to somebody and say, excuse me. Where's the lingerie department? So they tell me. So I go down to the lingerie department, and I find Hope, and so I saddle up next to her very quickly. And then she says, I have to go to the bathroom. So she leaves me again. But now I'm in the lingerie department by myself with a purse. And she's gone for a long time, and we're on a time schedule. I knew a kind of a special, can I say it, brawl that she needed because she just had a mastectomy. And so now I'm going to the lady and asking her, excuse me, do you have any brawls that clasp in the front that don't have underwire? And she, and I've got a purse. (laughs) It was just absolutely humiliating. But my point is it's good for us. And so then everybody's kind of looking at me and she's helping me and we're looking and looking and looking and looking. And I mean, I just, I just, I'm looking through brawls, and finally somebody else was helping me, and then somebody else was helping me. So here's the guy with a purse looking for a specific brawl, other customers waiting on me, and they see the whole situation. She was gone forever. She wanted to have a mocha or something, just left me there. She finally comes back. We finally get it, and then she bought this, she bought that, she bought this. I'm carrying her purse. I'm carrying a couple of shopping bags, and she's on my arm, or we're walking out. She's carrying nothing. I'm carrying it all because she had an operation. 
So I've got all the bags. I've got her purse. We're walking down the mall. People are looking at us. And she says, you know what people are thinking, don't you? And I'm thinking, yes, what a servant. What a husband. And she says, no, they're thinking he's whooped. (laughs) Thank you. One of our phrases in the house is, hope originated this, what is the gift in that? What is the gift in your trial? You know, the Bible says, um, and I don't have time to finish. I've got to wrap this up. The Bible says in the book of Hosea, Hosea that God will bring you, I want you to catch this, this is crazy. God will bring you into a place of wilderness so that he can draw you to himself again. Hosea chapter 2. God will draw you sometimes into a place of wilderness. That means a private place of aloneness where maybe friends you thought were friends really didn't turn out to be friends. Circumstances that were good for you, all of a sudden they're gone. Sometimes God orchestrates this. You can see it all through the Bible. He does this. To get you alone so that you will learn how to relate to him and that he can show you himself as your God. And then he says this, and in the wilderness, I will make um, acor. It's a place of trouble. Huh? I will make, see, you just don't care. You go through a trial, you just don't care. I will make the valley of acor, which is the valley of trouble. Listen to this. God will bring you into a place of wilderness. And then he says, I will make the valley of Achor, which is after Achan, who created havoc for the people of God through his sin. I will make the valley of trouble. Listen, I will make it a door of hope. That word hope literally means a a rope, a stretched rope. It comes from when the children of Israel went in to take the promised land, and Rahab, the prostitute, said, please protect me and my family when you guys come in to take over the promised land. And they said, if you put a scarlet rope outside of your window, uh, the, the rope that you let us escape from, because they came to kill the spies, so she hid them. She put a scarlet rope out, and they, they went down the rope. They said, if you put out this hope of rope, this rope of hope, In the land of trouble, you will be protected. Some of you feel like you might be at the end of your rope, but that rope is your hope in God. He will make that land of trouble into a door of hope. He'll actually, I just love it when he does this to the devil. He will make what the devil meant for evil, and God will use that very thing place and the very thing and turn it to good. Like the crack house. We saw a video of a crack house that was turned in a girl who, no, it was an abortion. It was a, it was a, a video we watched of this abortion clinic. I'll have to show it to you sometime. This girl had an abortion and it's always shamed her. What a beautiful story. This girl, teenager, had an abortion 
It had shamed her an entire life, her adult life. She ends up in church, but she never could get away from the shame of the abortion. So the church she was in, without them knowing, took over the abortion clinic and turned it into a house of hope for unwed mothers. And she ended up working there. She was part of repainting it, resurfacing it, and making it a house of hope. They had no idea. Isn't that a beautiful story of redemption? God will take what Satan means for evil, and he literally will turn that very thing and that very place into a door of hope. And the last one is trial-shaped future generations. I don't have time to teach this, but the way that you go through your trial shapes your children and your grandchildren. They need to see your faith in God because they're watching, and they're going to follow your faith. So this is what I want to pray for you today as we close this message. The only point I want to take out of this and the point of application is the point about what is the gift in this? What blessings are in the midst of the trial? Maybe it's a trial of the past you can think of. Maybe it's a current trial you're going through. I want you to, if you would, just close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit this question. Because this is critical for you to go through trials well and to come out better and to worship God rather than curse him in the midst of it. Ask the Holy Spirit. Well, first I want you to get a trial in your mind. Get, it, get something that's painful, something negative, something that's a place of suffering or frustration. I just want you to get that trial right up in front of you, in your mind. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe your parents got divorced. Maybe it was somebody you thought was a friend that you found it wasn't. What trial? What hardship? Get it there. Now ask the Holy Spirit, show me the gift in that trial. Now, if you'll, if you'll do this and you'll be patient, something's going to rise up inside of you, and you're going to start to see the fingerprints of God. What blessings came out of that trial or are coming out of this trial? Holy Spirit, I ask that right now you would raise to the surface the blessings of God in the midst of these trials. Now, these, those things that you're grabbing a hold of, it's like dragging a magnet across the sand, and you pick up precious metals along the way, hopefully. Those are the things that become your testimony that you use against the enemy. Those are the things you use.
to worship God with. Be a detective. Begin to look in the midst of your trials for the good. They are there. And focus on those. Celebrate those. Live on those. For me, the greatest, the greatest part of this trial so far is how much time I get to spend with my wife. I love how much time we get to spend together. We're very busy. Busy, busy. And this has stopped us in our tracks. And I get to spend more time with my wife. I love that about this trial. Satan's trying to rip marriages apart. Well, he's strengthening ours. Lord, I pray strength, pray strength over your people. I pray that we would be a people of faith. I pray we would be a people that worship you in the darkness that praise you in the midst of suffering so that you can invade our praises and do wonderful things in the midst of our trials that just show the enemy how good you really are. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. If you've never given your life to Jesus, um, I'm going to call the prayer teams down here, and I'm going to be down here. The only rope of hope you have in getting into heaven is Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He's your only hope. He was sinless. You're sinful. He died for your sins so that if you gave, make him your Savior, there's an exchange that takes place. Your unrighteousness for his righteousness. And I want to pray that prayer with you. So if you've never made Jesus Christ your Savior, I'm going to ask when I dismiss everybody to come down front here. And I want to pray with you so you can ask Jesus into your heart. I also want to pray, ask the prayer teams to come down. If you have any sickness, any disease in your body, any other need you have for prayer, maybe the word today about spiritual awakening is for you. And you don't want to leave this place until you're prayed for and allow God to revive your spiritual heart. Thank you for listening to me today. Thank you for coming. God bless you. Be the people of God, the salt and light of the world. Amen.